just this week, there's been something like $10 million in hacked, stolen, embezzled funds, one CEO fired and two significant Silicon Valley corporations that have gone under. If any other industry was behaving this way, there would be significant investigation into it. But there's no legislation, there's no monitoring, there's no ownership. Twitter, TikTok, Threads, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, WeChat, Be Real. This never-ending list can be a social media marketer's nightmare. So we're here to unlock social media and the trajectory of its myriad platforms. I'm Lucy Shelley, multimedia editor at PMW, and this is Performance Marketing Unlocked. Today's guest is Adam Walker, global digital marketing lead at Duffrey, and previously head of performance marketing at Phil Unique, which then became Sephora UK. He is a frequent PMW commentator who we often rely on to give the honest marketer's view. Hi, Adam. <laughs> Welcome to the Unlock Studio. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. I feel like the honest view is kind of a, a nice way of saying the critical view. but <laughs> It's a double-edged sword, isn't it? That kind of uh, compliment, if you will. But I mean, I always prefer hearing the honest view, as do our readers. But would you probably agree that a lot of marketing commentary is quite, hmm, I don't know, safe? I think there's a lot of marketers who really want to kind of be ahead of the curve on stuff. And so when new topics occur, when new trends occur, they want to be the first to jump on it. They want to say they're believers in it um, and they want to be the kind of thought leader in it. Um, The problem that then comes from that is when these things collapse or if there's problems with these, it's difficult to backtrack. So a lot of the kind of things that I do is trying to find as much data as possible and research to begin with and understand like what is the reality of these platforms and these trends before going in with an opinion Um, and I think often times because these platforms and brands are such good marketers it's very much glossed over some of the problems that they face but if you do a bit of digging you can see there are holes in things Mm -hmm. um, before they kind of become genuinely huge public knowledge. Okay so it's kind of it's less turbulent than it might seem on the outside. I, yeah, I think I think just trying to be as open to um, the flaws of these ideas as possible saves you a lot of kind of embarrassment later down the line. And I'd rather be safe than sorry, which may seem very boring and probably very cynical, but um, the alternative is ending up feeling, you know, with egg on your face um, <laughs> by the time you get, get, get to the end of that journey. We have so many platforms dying and birthing at the moment and I named a few at the beginning but uh, before we start the podcast I wanted to ask you if only if there could only be one social platform to exist (laughs) personally and professionally which one would you choose oh um I mean I'm I'm a huge fan of Twitter the original version of Twitter because of what it what it did for um, the democratization of journalism and uh, the way that people could connect with celebrities. And I think it kind of morphed very quickly because we didn't have the social behaviors and understanding down pat. So we ended up with a lot of hate speech, a lot of trolls, and it evolved very quickly into this thing that wasn't easily controlled. Um, but I'm also a massive fan of Reddit. I love I love um, people getting very, very obsessive about very small hobbies um, I'm a gamer, um, and I love kind of following the games that I'm interested in on on Reddit. But 
there is also a very toxic community presence in a lot of areas of that there too. So I think those are, those are probably the two that I would fall between. Um, but with the understanding that there are flaws and problems that probably need to be improved. I think there's flaws and problems that just exist inherently with social platforms. You know, if you bring communities together, there's always going to be people's voices that, you know, are going to be more negative and more harmful than others. Yeah. That's just nature of the beast, isn't it? Yeah, wherever people are, there's going to be bad people too. Um, And I think they tend to be quite a vocal minority, Mm -hmm. but they can feel like a very overwhelming presence when you're in the platform itself. And I've definitely felt that with the way that some of the platforms have changed and some of the um, some of the ways that hate speech has kind of really bec- become a prominent problem in a lot of these platforms and one that's really difficult to tackle, um, particularly, you know, when Facebook and um, is coming out with reports and whistleblowers saying that they had identified hate speech as far back as before the 2016 election, but it had been shut down because the senior leadership saw it as more engaging and drove more conversation and drove more engagement with the platform. So they didn't try to stop it. Mm. And I can see that being a really difficult problem to solve for these platforms in, in a race for survival. And that's kind of why the marketers then hesitate about using the platforms about brand safety and appearing uh, next to hate speech. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and also, I think there's a kind of uncertainty and weariness from marketers with the platforms right now. Um, Twitter, as recently as last month, announced that they had seen their um, ad revenue drop nearly 60% year on year. Um, and, their, and their engagement is declining. Their traffic is declining at a rate of about 6% since the beginning of the year. I think there's a risk there. Um, Meta has just been handed two of the largest data privacy fines in history. Um, and Threads still has those data problems, despite it being released after those fines. Mm. And that's being looked at right now as kind of a real issue. And at the same time, you know, younger audiences don't engage with Meta's platform so much. They do engage with TikTok, but TikTok is currently facing bans in, has been banned in Montana. The French government is investigating it. Uh, the UK government has banned it on civil service devices. So has the Australian government. So... You, if you invest in one platform and it goes wrong, then you're in trouble. But spreading your resources across four or five different platforms is also really difficult. So I think there's a lot of social media marketers out there doing a lot of work mm. to try and cover their bases as much as possible. I mean, I was going to ask, when I said at the beginning, it can be a social media marketer's nightmare mm. having all these platforms. Is it? Is it a stressful time having all these platforms coming and going? Or is it very, or is the industry more agile than I than I think. I think the industry is uh, very much attempts to be agile. And I think there is a definite investment to try and connect with communities where those communities exist. I do feel sorry for some of the marketers who the morning that threads landed, Mm -hmm. there was an email from somebody high up being like, what are we, what are we doing about threads? What's going on there? You know, what, and how many people have just replicated what they're doing on Twitter. And again, that platform has lost 50% of its followers since its launch um, and engagement is down as well. And Meta is very hopeful about that, but whether it will succeed is still something that I think a lot of us are watching and waiting to see. Mm-hmm. And, ev- and it feels like there's a very kind of like, we're going to put this on a kind of back burner, like keep it, 
keep it going, but we're not going to kind of tailor a specific strategy for it until we see what happens next. Mm. I think that that's a common story I've heard in this studio about the higher up saying, oh, this new tech has, you know, launched the metaverse and NFTs, what are we doing with mm. it? When without really thinking about why they should be there. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, it, it's not just marketers, but there are entire, you know, departments that are kind of facing that conversation regularly. And it's, and it's, uh, it's not to blame senior leadership. Like they are hearing this is the next big thing in all the press releases. And then when the marketers are asked about it, they're like, mm, we're not sure. It doesn't seem like it's going to be a big thing. So there's lots of conflicting information going around at any one time. Well, let's begin the podcast. Okay. So I love to ask all of our guests because I want to get inside their heads. But what is what has been getting your attention recently in the industry? Um, I think genuinely, and I realize there's lots of these kind of hot topics right now. I'm very interested in AI from both the kind of um, the potential possibilities of what it brings, but also the concerns around the technology as well. Um, ChatGPT4 has recently had analysis done and they found that it is more incorrect than its previous versions, but it's better at justifying that it's not correct. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're seeing these kind of ways that AI is stupid in ways that we're not quite aware and couldn't predict. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really fascinating for me. I'm very cautious about accelerating it being bought into everyday life. Um, and there's some excellent resources from the likes of the Center of Humane Technology that talk about how AI being introduced into everyday human life, into tracking, marketing, health, travel, presents a significant problem for us because they are all closed black boxes. You can ask them queries, but because of the nature of them being proprietary technology, you can't interrogate that. You can't understand the rationale of the answers you're getting back. And so if there's errors, and if errors occur, then there's no logical way you can reverse engineer that to get back to the problem. And so where does the liability lie? Does it lie with the AI? Does it lie with you for using them? Um, so that's really interesting me. I think the kind of conflict we've seen within the social platforms is something that I'm really interested by. I think the kind of morbid obsession with Silicon Valley and kind of how that changes and, you know, who's next and what's coming and, you know, what's going, I think has really interested me. And then how performance marketing is trying to deal with all of this at any one time, I think is really fascinating to me and I, I very much enjoy the debate but also putting together strategies that are kind of trying to satisfy as much as this as possible in a way that has securities in place and parameters designed to keep them in um, a testing phase rather than going all in. I mean I find it very exciting as a a marketing journalist you know with all these platforms coming about um because they almost seem to each have their own personality now you know we kind of we kind of know that uh um the t twitter x is going to be always very volatile what's going to happen next with musk um linkedin's very safe very steady and it's quite nice just putting these characters onto these different platforms and seeing uh how marketers use them in that mm. way as well yeah, I, I, I think it's entertaining. Um, <laughs> it's definitely def entertaining. That's definitely. Right. Um, I worry that this is a, uh, a clash of egos at times. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the Musk and Zuckerberg kind of conflict is very interesting, but I worry that the fallout of that is people and, you know, the brand's investment and consumer privacy. I really worry about that. And I think 
at the end of the day, you know, like the boxing match is announced. I'm like, of course, of course, this is the logical way for us as as adults oh, to resolve gosh. this yeah. multi-billion argument. Mm. Um, Will you be tuning in if it happens? Uh, I'll probably like read the analysis afterwards <laughs> and be ashamed of everything to do with it at the same mm, time. I, know. I don't want to give them even one extra viewer. <laughs> you know I mean? uh, they're not they're not counting my impression. That's for sure. True. Um, but yes, you were talking about AI, because I know you uh, are undergoing a lot of courses, a lot of learning to uh, educate yourself fully uh, in AI as far as you can. Do you think uh, for other marketers in varying seniority, whether they're you know very young, very new starters, um, or far more senior, that they should also be learning AI and uh, learning more about it, taking courses and things like that? Is that an essential skill for marketers, would you say? I think if you're going to try and have an informed opinion about it, you should probably try and be informed. Um, and I think, I, like, I've done introductory courses to it. I am in no way an AI coding expert or programming expert. And a lot of what I build my um, arguments and my opinions on is based on the analysis of the people who code and write this. And a lot of them are saying we should be concerned about this and we advise you to get educated and we advise you to understand what's going on. So yeah, I, I mean, Google has a set of, I think, seven or eight different courses that allow you to understand what's being done and then write your own within a studio and you can kind of test it out, see how it works. And it's very, very basic AI programming and things like that, but it gives you an idea of the mechanisms that are going on underneath. Um, I worry that there are probably AI developers out there who are deeply frustrated with people like me coming on and being like, this is the future and them being like, but do you understand how it works? Mm. So I, I, my cautiousness is genuinely because I'm a little bit informed. And that's probably the first thing that I would say. And followed quickly by everybody who I trust on this says that we should be careful. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I would suggest to everybody else is read from people like the Center of Humane Technology, the kind of AI developers new- newsletters. I get one from a company, uh, a guy called Ben's Bytes, and that's just a roundup of lots of AI news articles. Um, and that's a good way of just keeping on top of the general kind of topics and categories. Um, but also, yeah, try and do a few courses just to understand what the algorithms, what the learning, pro- the programs are doing to learn. I um, Our previous guest, Tom Grogan, who's CEO of MDRX, he said the very similar thing. He said, knowing a little, knowing the basics helps you become more, helps you think more critically. You can Mm. be a better critical thinker when you're reading everything else about AI. You can at least understand the fundamentals, the basics to help you determine what's good, what's not, Mm. what's right, what's wrong. I I, I completely agree with him. I think it's a valuable opinion. And I think it's probably one of those things that as you get older, you understand how little you understand. And I think that's probably the best way to approach this is kind of be transparent about it, say what you know, say what you don't know, and then kind of give your opinion off the back of that. Well, like Musk and Zuckerberg, let's go into another binary in our rating section where we go through the overrated and underrated items that you've brought with us today. <laughs> so I'll let you choose whether you like to start with underrated or overrated. Uh, let's go, let's start with the bad and then we'll move to the good. Okay, okay. So what is overrated and gets far too much attention in the industry? People who know me know that I have a real problem with Web3. I think it is significantly overrated. 
Um, I've spoken a lot about Metaverse and its problems. And there was a lot of marketers that jumped on and said, this is going to be the future. This is going to be huge. Everybody should get involved. But if, but again, if you kind of read the research around it, it had a, a 1 in 10 retention rate of users. If a user arrived the first time, only 10% um, of them would come back. I think it was actually 11%. Mm -hmm. And that's for people who have invested in a VR headset, have access to one, and have already overcome those barriers. And the second element of that is the barriers are so high around these kind of platforms that the they almost seem like the opposite way of going about the internet. Um, I, I said I was a gamer before. PlayStation, I think, has sold around 600 million units across PlayStation 5 and PlayStation 4 consoles. 1% of them are, are represented by VR headsets. So it is a tiny, tiny, very enthusiastic group of people. And these metaverses that need to be built to sustain this are very, very expensive. Fortnite, which is probably one of the most successful ones, has had billions invested into it to keep it running. And it requires constant work. And I don't think brands fully understood that when it was first discussed. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of fallen apart a bit. And, you know, Disney's just backed out of it. Facebook has put it on the back burner and said it's not really our focus anymore. I think the NFT market has dropped by 95% of its value since its peak in January 2022, which I think represents a real kind of problem. And then generally it's filled with a lot of kind of fraud and corruption. Just this week, there's been something like $10 million in hacked, stolen, embezzled funds, one CEO fired and two significant Silicon Valley corporations that have gone under. Um, and all of, this is, um, it, all of this is published widely online. And for me, if any other industry was behaving this way, there would be significant investigation into it. But there's no legislation. There's no monitoring. There's no ownership. Mm. I think blockchain technology is very, very interesting and very powerful. But I don't think anything we've done with it yet has been particularly great. I, I do agree. But some people would say, um, and I wonder if you agree, that the... The beginnings of what it is at the moment. Do you think it's setting the foundation of what it could be in the future that could be better, could be more accessible, or do you think it's doomed? <laughs> um, maybe. I think it has a long way to go, and I think it probably needs a lot more regulation and kind of transparency. Mm -hmm. um, I think the problem with a lot of this is, is people are saying like, "Oh, people said the internet was doomed when it started." But the internet became more accessible because people got a PC, people got laptops, people got smartphone devices. And now you can take the internet with you wherever you go. The metaverse is an inversion of that. You have to be kind of sat down with a VR headset. You can't see or do anything else. You can't interact with anybody else like you can when you're on your smartphone. You're kind of confined to this very, very restricted way of viewing your surroundings again. So it doesn't really follow the track of kind of innovation. Yeah. And I worry that it's just, and also, I think from my point of view, whenever I've asked anybody, like, what's the end value to a consumer for this, for NFTs, for cryptocurrency? And they're like, well, they can make money. And I'm like, okay, anything else? And typically, there's a lot of blanks drawn after that. And that's not a big enough sell for me because it's kind of getting its roots into topics, conversations, hobbies that I think were previously play for fun and now are being kind of turned into this play to earn mm. messaging, which I am emphatically against from my side. I don't think it has a place there. I, no, I agree because also the, um, 
like he said about how it kind of setting it doesn't match the innovation paths that are you know going with other technologies you know if we look at ar which uses us to which we use technology to connect with the physical world whereas this seems to be doing the complete opposite in a way it's taking us away from the physical world mm. and you know whether it's strapping a computer right onto your face and it it seems like an odd way to go ethically really yeah uh, both ethically but also i just the consumer the the barriers to the consumer and the consumer journey just don't match up with something that's easy you know zuckerberg's original idea of facebook all you required was a computer and an email address and a friend who had it originally now it's you need a vr headset you need the capability to pull this off you need a fairly powerful pc to kind of get it running effectively um and even then the worlds are fairly barren there's not a lot of active users. I think last recorded, there was 400,000 users um, across the world in their Horizon Metaverse, which is very small. And there's a lot of critiques out there from people who are avid gamers and journalists and things like that who have looked into these worlds and said they're just not enjoyable to be in. So I think for now, it either needs a lot more work or we need to go completely back to the drawing board and figure out what we actually want it for. And why was it started, really? Exactly. Well, let's hear what you think is underrated and what do you think should get more attention in the industry? Um, I think owned media. I think people, you know, SEO, user experience, website content, the ability to create a better website has this kind of multiplier effect on everything else you do. If you build a better website, your paid media works better. It's cheaper. You get a better ROI out of it. And... The problem that a lot of marketers face is it's a long-term commitment with long-term investment and often doesn't have immediate results. Paid media, you can kind of switch on and you've got immediate kind of results coming back to you. But with the likes of SEO, with the likes of user experience, that is a lengthy testing process. And at the end of the day, three months down the line, Google might decide that it didn't quite work the way that you think it did and you might get penalized for it. And there's no way of knowing. Mm. Um, So I... But I see that as really kind of like, if you're going to invest in something, invest in paid media, fine, but also invest equally into your website. You should be testing to drive, you know, better engagement, better conversion rate, better speed, because otherwise you're taking people from a very high functioning platform like Google Meta straight onto something that doesn't work as well. And that's going to frustrate people. It's going to send people back to Google anyway, isn't it? They'll just exactly. research. And else. find a competitor who, who moves quicker than you do. So I find it very underrated, but extraordinarily powerful if you get it right. Mm, absolutely. I mean, like, yeah, yeah, as you we were saying, you'll just go straight back to Google. If you seem your, your home base, your home page mm. needs to be where people are going to stay mm. and can pe- keep people to retain them uh, and, yeah, and do that better. And in your experience at your various different companies and roles... How, how easy is it for brands that have been around for a long time to then have to, say, you know, transform, digital transformation, we hear, transform their site, improve it? Is it a difficult process or...? I think, I think website management is, is difficult across the board, especially for e-commerce. I think you're working with channels of attribution that are getting more and more difficult to get right. I think um, you have a lot of different stakeholders all pulling for different things. And you have constant fluctuations in terms of design trends and behavioral trends and consumer trends. And you have to kind of create this Venn diagram that matches all of that and kind of is a one size fits all. And I don't think that's really possible without being a company the size of 
Google or, you know, ASOS or something like that. Some Something with a lot of staff and a lot of development resource behind it. I think it's a tale pretty much in every company that dev resources stretch, that data science resources stretch. So I, I don't think it's easy, but I think there's a greater and greater focus because the question that I hear a lot across the kind of conversations that I see on your website at conferences is how do we stop just spending more and more and more with Google? How do we stop the budgets just increasing at an exponential rate? What do we do to kind of remove our reliance from those platforms? And that is an investment internally in your own tech, your own site. And it's not a quick solution. It's a very long-term solution, but it's better to start now than wait a year and regret not starting a year ago. Well, let's hear more about your experience and the best projects that you've worked on. So if you could take us through uh, an exciting project that you had facilitated and what you learned from it. I think I would say I would say the work that I did at Fiorini going through to Sephora, I was very proud of. Um, the first thing that I was brought on to do was kind of in-house the team um, from agency work, which is a very tricky task and kind of find, finding the right people is difficult. And I think building that team was a real, something I was really proud of, but also taught me a lot about leadership, um, taught me a lot about the kind of skill sets that I need to kind of match the flaws and the gaps in my knowledge. Were you surprised by how you built the team? Kind of did it, did it, was it not how you expected it might have looked in the end? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Like I, I think to begin with, I kind of had a very clear idea of what I wanted. And then by the end, I realized that I, I couldn't have people who matched my profile of what I wanted. I had to have people who thought differently and made and, you know, could challenge me on my opinions because that's really what I wanted. The trade-off for that that I gave them was I will give you the room to kind of fail, make mistakes and kind of come back and I'll, you know, I'll take the heat on that. But what I want you to do is kind of try and keep reaching and keep going for things. And I ran two two significant Black Fridays with them, the migration from Feel Unique to Sephora and um, several high promotion periods. And they were fantastic throughout. Um, so I was very, very proud of that. I think um, I think it was it was a great team and a great project to be a part of. Black Friday. It must be an absolute nightmare <laughs> working on a website like Sephora UK slash Feel Unique on a Black Friday. I mean, does do you feel the stress from behind behind the wall? Well, I think I think I worked agency before that, and I'd done. I think by the time I left Sephora, I did eleven e-commerce Black Fridays in a row um, for different brand with different brands and um, across different channels. Uh, I think it it is it is a sizably stressful time, and I think no matter how much you prepare, there will be an inevitable last minute change because of circumstances because something's changed on the website and because everybody's doing something at the same time your competitors move and you have to move just as quick um i feel i i feel very much so for everybody involved in black friday particularly on the front lines whenever it comes around um because it is a real drain mentally and i think that from both the back office and then the people who are also you know working the warehouses working distribution just trying to keep it all running um, it is good to see more brands kind of moving towards a more distributed kind of risk averse mm-hmm. um, or risk mitigating strategy of trying to spread it out throughout the week um, or across two weeks because you're putting significantly less stress on everything going right on one day, which I think is definitely worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And so obviously, you know, with with uh, 
big calendar days in the year, like, you know, Christmas, uh, Prime Days, they obviously all, the preparation begins a lot, a lot earlier, months earlier. Mm-hmm. When does your Black, well, when did your Black Friday begin? <laughs> how, how many months in advance was it prepared? I mean, depending on the brand, it was, it could start in April, March, um, because that's not necessarily, you know, the performance marketing side of it, but you're involved in conversations, which is how we're going to start wireframing the website. What, how are we going to position this to the brands we're selling? What kind of collections do we want running? What specific kind of commercial area do we want to be in by the time we get to that point so we can discount effectively? Um, and I think that's, that's been, that's been kind of true of pretty much every single brand. The more preparation time you have, the better. The sad part is, is that somebody will drop a, email invite on a f- end of February being like Black Friday conversation. You're like, here it comes again, oh, like gosh. three months ago. Yeah. We just got out of this. Um, but, it, uh, you know, I have I have friends who I think at the end of every single Black Friday, we would jump on a Zoom call together and kind of have a beer and just be like, see you next year, lads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> gosh, you get three three months off, it seems, then it's straight back on again. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely difficult. And good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've now come to the time where it's your chance to sell something and no discounts allowed for this, I'm afraid. (laughs) And this is the PMW Resell Me a Pen Challenge where we task our guests to resell an outdated, no longer used object, which has on the whole been replaced by a newer technology. And I feel really guilty about giving this one to you. It was chosen by our previous guest, not by me. Chosen by uh, Paula Ayonkon from Avon. And she has tasked you with Groovy Chick. Yeah, this is such an interesting one for me. And I know I have, I think, 60 seconds to do this. Only 60 seconds. Only 60 seconds to do this. So I think I'm quite fortuitous. The timing of this in terms of Barbie has just come out. And we are in this kind of revitalization of very nostalgic brands. Mm. We're also now at a point when we have a millennial audience that is in their late 30s, early 40s, and have a significant amount of buying power. So I would kind of position this as kind of recapturing the nostalgia of your youth, that kind, those kind of tween years, but in, you know, in an empowerment kind of way, if you were... Well, don't start selling it yet. We've got to start the timer. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. This couldn't have happened at a better time with, in, the, in the wake of Barbie and everything. But Adam Walker, when you were ready... Mm-hmm. You have 60 seconds to resell me Groovy Chick. So I think we are all now at a late, at a point in our lives where we have begun to develop a purchasing power. And I think with the cost of living crisis and everything like that, we are craving for something that is kind of recapturing nostalgia, recapturing ourselves, recapturing an identity. And I think a lot of people, men and women, identified with Groovy Chick. It was a way of bringing that in. So... For me, I think this brand is the UK version of Barbie in one form or another. I see this as capturing audiences that are interested in these kind of nostalgic topics, these brands of that kind of audi- of that kind of range, trying to bring people back these these kind of moments of connection with something that was a very simple idea, but very powerful for a lot of people too, and a way to identify. And also, you know, pink is in right now. <laughs> pink is definitely in. So we should be, we should absolutely be kind of bringing that into our conversation too. I see that as kind of easy audience targeting. Time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. 
Well, yeah, so you're, you're basically just doing another a brand jumping on the Barbie wagon, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> just you're taking over pink. Um, mm. I don't know. I feel... I'm not that convinced. I can't that's lie. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I, I, I won't lie. My, my interactions with Groovy Chick were minimal, to say the least. I think the girls in my class had it, but mm-hmm. I, it wasn't something that necessarily I connected with, much to my shame. Um, but reading about the brand and reading about the history, it's pretty incredible. Mm. It, it survived way longer than I thought it did. Yeah, it, it's definitely still about, but and I imagine if uh, they will be having a revival as this n- nostalgia piece is definitely uh, very popular at the moment. This is mm. why people are enjoying Barbie and a lot of other brands as well. Nineties mm. fashion back in, exactly. you know, boot cut jeans and crop tops. Yeah, like, yeah, big shoes, big boots, curtains. Like, why? Are, this is clearly the next step. Well. I hate to let you down That's on fair. this Friday morning, but I don't think you have resolved me, Groovy Chick. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen um, uh, more thought into the strategy, the marketing strategy. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. I get that. I was, I would, I was thinking about like how to kind of bring that into influencer marketing and how you kind yes. of how you how you make that work. Um, that but, would have been cool, actually. That would have been cool. That, yeah, that could have given you the win. But I feel like, you know, the kind of straight white man being like, this is what women want and being extremely, <laughs> extremely wrong. <laughs> it's, so. a ner- it's a nervous conversation to begin. But <laughs> <laughs> I can understand your fear. And OK, so what have you chosen for our next guest? Um, I'd like to, uh, I think, like the old fashioned telegram. I think in this area of era of tweets mm-hmm. and disappearing kind of feeds and things like that, what does, how do we bring the telegram back into it? Oh, that's you know, the very kind of, good one. dear sir, stop. Yes. Your parents need to see you again. Stop. Something like that, you know, <laughs> just kind of. Well, we have come to time. Thank you so much for coming on Unlocked today. And yeah, I hope you've enjoyed your time. I have. Thank you for inviting me, Lucy. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this week's episode of Performance Marketing Unlocked. I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, please leave us a review, like, follow, subscribe. And we love to hear from you too. So head to the PMW Unlocked community group on LinkedIn, where you can tell us what you think, ask us questions, suggest questions for our next week's guests and interact with your performance marketing peers.